In this episode, I have a great friend and colleague of mine, Dr. Andrea Eden Lowe, who is helping me out because I'm currently teaching um, this semester and we're in a level four lockdown here in Tamaki Makaurau, Auckland, Aotearoa, New Zealand, and have just been told that we're going to be online for the rest of the semester. I just wanted to uh, give a little bit of uh, context or some points to kind of be thinking about um, because this was set up to uh, provide for my students and she was gracious enough for me to make it available to the broader public. I wanted to just give a couple of things to think of um, to be aware of as, as we get into this discussion and looks at the history of the Hawaiian steel guitar and its influence on the blues guitar and ultimately, you know, the genealogy of what we would call today dominant global popular music. One of the things that we have to be mindful of in thinking about this is, you know, we're going to champion the Hawaiian musicians and Hawaiian music, but we're also going to be critical of the larger systems of power that it has to navigate uh, within or that they have to navigate within. And so there's this constant tension of power and agency, the agency of individual performers and performances and the larger systems of power as to who controls the recording of that performance or who is influencing how to perform, you know, and that's gonna be, you know, the producers and the directors and the people who own the technology to record um, or the filming technology and also the audience. You have all those influences that are impacting the music, but the music nonetheless also has the agency of the individuals who invented and perform it. And so it's, it's this tricky paradox of admiring skilled performers and performances and simultaneously critiquing oppressive representations of them. And, and so that's one thing to keep in mind. The other thing is, uh, because of the time frame that we're looking at, and then, you know, the early 20th century, uh, more specifically, the way race is represented, the way culture is represented, and that still very much echoes through till today, but was nonetheless a, a very different context. And one of the things that occurs in this time, and that's the conflation of different groups of people and the constructions of race, um, which is a category, a way of categorizing people that emerges through colonialism, the transatlantic slavery, anti-Blackness, um, and then other groups that are then racialized as well, the, the formation and invention of whiteness out of a pan-Europeanness in the context of the conquest of the Americas. And so this is something that um, was part of the tools of power and empire. And there uh, is a long history of um, minstrelsy and uh, racist characterization of African-Americans and Black uh, music and, and cultural production. And so when I talk about that paradox of agency and power, that's something that you know, uh, we've been looking at in the class uh, for African-American and Black music and applies to these other groups, albeit in different ways, because each group has their own specificity um, and interactions uh, with the systems of power and their own unique kind of contributions to music and negotiating 
this reality, and at the same time, a shared and related struggle also. And um, part of that emerges from being conflated together with each other, right? So if we look at any uh, socially uh, constructed racial group, there's incredible diversity inside of that group. Um, however, you know, there's assumptions through a racial logic that there's a, an essential commonality. Um, and then, you know, you get that happening on a bigger scale where you have different racial groups that are then conflated together um, as well. And so I'm going to play a little bit of music from a clip from Betty Boop in the Bamboo Isle uh, from 1932. You can look it up on YouTube and, and watch it if you'd like. It's got some pretty hard to watch racist depictions um, and uh, cartoonish character characterizations of Pacific peoples. Um, and you can see in there the way that the same type of racist characterizations of menstruacy and um, thinking of African-Americans in order to dehumanize black people uh, are, are similarly utilized in this um, short clip um, and, and production. And on top of that, Betty Boop is in um, a brown face, right? So usually presented as a, a white flapper uh, woman. And then in this context, is, her skin is darkened up and is, she comes into play uh, in place of the natives and is the kind of the, one of the central characters in here. However, despite all of this really messy um, depiction, you have the performances of music coming from a group called the Royal Samoans. And they play uh, some incredible music, including a Samoan hymn and uh, within there, and, and even a Fatopati, which is the Samoan slap dance. Um, and so there's this kind of tricky situation of on one hand wanting to admire the this moment in time of Samoan and in broader senses Pacific performance and music at the same time being critical of the way that they're being depicted and forced to uh, present themselves also because that alters the way that they choose to perform or that the it alters the way that they are made to also perform as far as the, the dance if you look up the video. Anyways, I'm gonna go ahead and play it so you can just hear a little bit of it. You're gonna hear some of the, uh, what would have been categorized as Pacific music or even categorized within the Hawaiian music genre at the time, again, because within commercial products, they're not really thinking about um, being correct. It's about what, how can you organize a commodity to sell? Um, and then you're gonna hear a little bit of the, the latch steel guitar, which will be discussed later with, with uh, Dr. Lowe. And you'll hear the hymn and the slap dance. So I'll go ahead and just play the, some of that for you here. If you play for me. Okay. My own
So just to, to give you a little um, taste of, of the music um, from that was recorded in the 1930s. But I just want to give one other example, just because this conflation is a, something that occurs in the early 20th century. And um, we have to kind of unpack that now to try to make sense of what's going on. Um, and so there's another example, and this comes from the film Stormy Weather, uh, which was uh, released in 1943. And if anybody is a Marvel fan and watched Black Panther and um, kind of that the incredible moment of being able to see this, this all black production, one of the significant things about that was you had black directors and producers, um, which changes the dynamic of how you can represent peoples um, because it wasn't the first all black um, cast. So, but Stormy Weather was an all black musical and there's a particular song in there that I wanted to highlight called Digga Digga Do, which was, um, I believe first uh, released in 1928 by uh, the Duke Ellington um, Orchestra. And in the later version from the film, um, it's performed by Lena Horn. And there's an integration of some, a, a, a new lyric that wasn't there previously of, that is Samoa by the sea. Um, and includes Tropical Maiden and then Zulu Man, which was part of the original uh, lyrics. And so you see then we have Samoa, Tropical Maiden being conflated with Zulu Man. Um, and again, these depictions and understandings of race in the early 20th century. Uh, however, they're getting conflated together in this, in this performance. And so it also mimics uh, the aesthetic of Samoan group dance, um, the Sasa, and uh, Lena Horn is singing, but then you have these rows of, of women um, that are sitting and they then join in um, in what appears to be an emulation of, of a uh, Sasa. And so one thing to keep in mind, right, again, just to make this point really clear, um, this is a quote from Lawrence Shulman. It goes, quote, these all black musicals, however brilliant the music and interpreters are depictions of black life as seen through the eyes of white producers, white directors and predominantly white movie studios, close quote. And so that's one of the reasons why there's this performance and it has problematic racist depictions of Africanness and black culture and also then conflates and integrates um, Samoan-ness and Pacific-ness and Pacific culture uh, within that as well. Uh, and so I just wanted to uh, point that out again, because this is just, it leads to a very messy history. And this helps kind of prepare us to think about the Hawaiian steel guitar and how that, you know, becomes part of this complex, um, rich genealogy um, in blues and blues being a black cultural production, black African-American music that also adopted and integrated from other places um, in the same way that peoples of the Pacific are adopting and integrating from uh, African-American black music as well um, at this time up through today. So I'm gonna go ahead and just play uh, a little bit of this so you can hear it and um, we'll go to there. There's a spot I know a place they call 
across them all by the sea. Talking there's not the most. They palaver in a code. They command each other, understand each other perfectly. If you're feeling fancy free, you don't give them repartee. Being a tropical maiden doesn't need topical talk. You maneuver, and if you approve her, you can win her love in a war. Zulu man is feeling blue. Hear his heart beat a little tattoo. You love me and I love you. The idea's old, but the method is new. I'll end it there um, for my introduction and uh, just wanted to put that out there so that would be um, uh, something for you to think of as, as you then listen to Dr. Lowe and, and myself discuss. Um, the Hawaiian music influence on gold pop and music and how um, that, you know, has often been left out of the picture of, of music history, but there's these personal relationships through musicians um, er, very early on that did attribute it to each other, but the industry didn't, right? And so uh, hopefully that helps as you think about that paradox of power and agency, and uh, we'll, we'll bring in Andrea now. Tenakwe, Andrea, thank you for being willing to share your knowledge and wisdom. I'll, first of all, I'll just let you introduce yourself. Don't sell yourself short or I'll encourage <laughs> you. I'll add some things, but I'll go ahead and introduce yourself uh, and what you do and, and your connection to Hawaiian music. Um, aloha. My name is Andrea Lowe, and I've, I'm connected to the villages of Fasi Tōtai, Solosō, and Tōmua in Samoa, to Fiji through my father, to Tongareva, to Penryn in the Central Pacific through my great-great-grandmother, Tianao, and through my grandfather, Ernest Kalaiho Kukai. I'm connected to the Ahupua of Kahana on the north east shore of Oahu in Hawaii. My research for my PhD was called Sound Travels and I looked at the transmission of Hawaiian music throughout the Pacific and Asia and in Australasia in the 19 in the early 1920s and particularly at the lives of a group of small musicians that traveled with my grandfather who was the, um, the band leader. And those musicians came from Aotearoa, uh, Samoa, and um, mainly Hawaii as well. And now I'm working as a curator at Auckland Museum as curator contemporary world. And I sit within the Pacific team, but I also have responsibilities for the world collection. Because we're going to look at Hawaiian music and in broader sense, kind of Pacific as well. Do you want to maybe talk a little bit about Hawaiian versus Native Hawaiian versus Kanaka versus Pacific sure. or Moana or, or whatever you think is best, most appropriate? Yeah, I think um, Kanaka Maoli is the most appropriate term. That's a term for the Indigenous people of Hawaii. And for me, that's the line that where so much musical innovation has come from is through that um, Kanaka Maoli connection to music, mele as a organizing principle in Hawaiian life. Now, one of the things that we wanted to kind of share also is thinking about 
the contributions, the influences of music from this region, like on the world, right? And particularly in the early days of recorded music and influence there, and even prior to that with, you know, traveling musicians and so on and so forth. Wow. And especially with your research, you've looked at a lot of that. I'm wondering if you might sharing some of that, like how was this music being received? How was it being transmitted? And, and how has it, I guess, starting off there, uh, influenced different uh, genres of music that are foundational to global popular musics today? Yeah, I think it's, it's quite easy to underestimate the power and influence of Hawaiian music because uh, it's often associated with hapahaole music, which is music of the early 20th century that brought, say, English lyrics with Hawaiian instrumentation, for example. So ukulele, steel guitar, slide steel guitar, and combine those sounds into something that was highly commercialized due to the basically the imperialism that was forced upon Hawaii by the American takeover in 1893 when Queen Lili was overthrown. And the influence of that had cast a obviously long shadow right through to today. But one of the things that I respect about Hapahale, which is often derided, it kept that transmission of music alive. So regardless of the fact that uh, it might have been seen as highly commercialized, Hawaiian stories and lyrics and instrumentations would continue to be passed along. And I think that you can't overestimate the power of that, even in popular context, perhaps because of popular context, how that music kept Hawaiian-ness alive uh, in a period when of incredible pressure for Hawaiians to assimilate as Americans. So I'm not sure if that answers your question. Yeah, yeah. But, uh... No, that's great. <laughs> that, that's great to get us going here, right? So with that overthrow, like you have this context where, and even prior to that, right, you have missionary influences, in particular, I think the Calvinists that were trying to outlaw what we might call quote-unquote traditional or indigenous musical forms and, and performances. And then especially after the overthrow, right, the significance of music, despite, you know, the very kind of limited vessels that you have to transmit that becomes very important to maintain, like you're mentioning, right, this Hawaiian-ness, this sense of indigeneity. And, but you also have these new inventions that, that emerge in that, like these new mm -hmm. forms and I'm you mentioned in there the steel guitar as one of those, which is a uniquely kind of Kanaka invention that has mm. been very influential. I'm wondering if we could, maybe we should dive into that. Like, what is the steel yeah. guitar and kind of a little bit of the background there? So um, I think it's pretty much accepted that Hawaiian, a young Hawaiian musician, Joseph Kukupu, who was born in um, 89, oh, sorry, 1874, in Laie, and he was a student at Kamehameha Boys when he discovered the sound of, I think it's attributed to either a steel comb or a bolt, a metal bolt. He discovered the sound that that would make on the strings of a guitar. And 
Joseph, as a 15, 16 year old, um, he's quickly developed the idea that if you raise the nut, it lifted the strings off the fretboard, higher off the fretboard, so that you could apply more pressure with the, uh, what he quickly developed was a, a steel, a smooth steel uh, piece that you could run smoothly up and down the strings. He developed the, so he developed the nut, he developed special finger picks so that he could, so it was easier to play it if the guitar was sitting on your lap. He was a really innovative young person and that lit a fire under music in Hawaii and it just took off through, um, through his friends and networks that sound was such a compelling sound, the sound of the slide steel that some quarters it was uh, kind of classifies weird or bizarre, it was also, um, it was a, a huge draw card to, to Hawaiian music and it ended up infiltrating all levels of music after that. So it went, it, it influenced the blues, it influenced um, country and western. It was, a, it was hugely popular by 1916. Hawaiian music was the most popular outside every other genre in American music context. So, and the steel guitar sound was a part of that. And Joseph helped immensely to popularize that through his work with the Bird of Paradise stage show that traveled around the world. But also there were musical emissaries um, coming, up, coming out from Hawaii all the time. My own grandfather, Ernest Kai, when he came to, he came to New Zealand in 1911 1910 and he'd already he was making recordings in 1911 as well so with Columbia who had um, set up studios in Hawaii to record music there and through those musics through musical emissaries that went not just to Australasia but to England and Germany and all around the world and as well as the as continental America playing on all circuits like the Orpheum circuit or the Chitlin circuit. And Hawaiian musicians were often classified as colored. So they would be refused entry to boarding houses on these circuits. And they would often end up staying in boarding houses with other African-American uh, musicians or uh, all types of ethnicities. And you can imagine, I mean, I don't know how much you hang out with musicians, but they, when musicians, those ideas just fly in contexts like that. And there's all kinds of admixing that goes on. So uh, that's the kinds of um, influence that Hawaiian music was having through popular outlets, through popular music outlets, but also on a personal level between musicians. And that's how music was communicated, the Hawaiian sound was communicated. And amongst those early blues musicians and country musicians, they would often acknowledge, you know, that this is a Hawaiian sound. This is how Hawaiian musicians play it. And John Troutman's article, Still in the Slide, is a really great praise of all of those things. And he turns a lot of ideas on their head about thinking about uh, music. He talks about how, you know, it's definitely plausible that the Diddley Bowl was influential but there's a lot more evidence to suggest that through personal interactions, as you mentioned, and through just the recording and popularity of what was being classified as Hawaiian music commercially, that the kikakila, the steel guitar is influencing 
um, that slide sound in in the in the in the blues. Um, yeah. I'll I'll just read a couple. I've got a couple short quotes from that article um, still in the slide. So he talks about Robert Johnson briefly, right? Who's got that famous story with as a Delta blues musician of, you know, he traded his soul with the devil to learn how to uh, play the blues. And he says that one of the things that when you start looking at things closely, it demystifies that. And he says that Robert Johnson now seems less like a devil conjuring mystic than a bright, observant, professional guitarist who readily assimilated a huge body of riffs borrowed from all kinds of all the records he could uh, get his hands on. Um, indeed, our understanding of music making in the early 20th century mm -hmm. South has changed dramatically in recent years, close quote. And, and that, like we mentioned, right, like there's this idea of kind of this isolation in the, in the U.S. South where mm -hmm. there was these personal relationships that were emerging with, uh, especially because of the long, the lines of race. Um, you know, you got uh, Kanaka and people from the Pacific that are traveling musicians, you got Mexicans, you've got, you know, African-Americans, and they all had the board together because of the Jim Crow South. And yeah. in that process, they're sharing um, music. And I think one of the biggest attributions, at least for me, is just thinking about Sun House, who's yeah. kind of like iconic, you know, founding Delta Blues musician. And um, this, is, this is the last quote, and I'll turn it back to you. But this is Eddie James, or quote unquote, Sun House. And when asked about how he came about the slide guitar and open tunings, they said that he thought for a while and then he responded, quote, the first guy I paid attention to was a guy by the name of Ruben Lacey. And he's the first guy, him and this guy, James McCoy, that I see play the slide the Hawaiian way. Close yeah. quote. Yeah. So, you know, even, you know, this founding Delta Blues musician is attributing that slide sound to the Hawaiian way of playing yeah. uh, the guitar. Yeah, even someone like W.C. Handy, who's, who's kind of seen to be a founding father of, of blues music, a founding father, he talks about, um, about listening to a musician, listening to someone play the guitar in the Hawaiian way when he's waiting for a train somewhere. And it's like, yeah, it's very pervasive music and, and that description of Robert Johnson that John Troutman has I think makes entire sense to me you know this idea that we're struck by lightning and that we're and that that's where ideas come from instead of being people who are, are open and absorbing ideas from around them just like most musicians I know are a musicologist they're always studying where sounds come from how they can adapt or be influenced by or listen to something that's going to expand their musical horizons. And, and why should Robert Johnson be any different from that? I think it helps to mystify, I, I think, because there's some of that kind of racial logic that still exists yeah. even to this day, right? This kind of quote unquote natural ability yeah. to play and that erases the, the studious nature, the diligence, the discipline. Yeah that musicians and artists, you know, develop to, uh, to, to yeah. master their craft. My grandfather was really well known as a, an ukulele maestro, but before that he was better known as a mandolin player and he would play Prussian ballads on the mandolin. I mean, he was brought up with a very classical ed music education because 
Hawaii at that time was a real crossroads. So people were coming from Europe on their way to America, they were leaving America on their way to, um, to Europe and Asia. And there was this uh, incredible cross-pollination going on in a port like Honolulu, where um, people from all over the world would, would um, mix vaqueros from um, South America who had come to, to the big beef farms in Hawaii. And so th there's, you get this incredible melting pot where people are bringing all kinds of musical influences, but that included classical music influences. So uh, Ernest would play the mandolin and then he would transfer some of those techniques to the ukulele. So he uh, played in the campanella style, for example, which is where you pluck a string and the music resonates in a, the way that the music resonates after you've clicked the string and you play another note on top of that. So that you get this blended melodic form of what can be a highly, what most people play as a, as a percussive instrument really, but he developed those, you know, he brought his classical training to the ukulele as well, as well as the mandolin. So you get these cross currents and someone like Makia Kialakai, who is a, um, incredible musician that was with the um, Royal Hawaiian Band and was a protege of um, Henry Berger, who was the conductor of the, of the uh, band for uh, many years. So he has that background as well. All of those band members had um, Henry Berger's teaching and the kinds of access they had through church music as well. They brought all of that to their to their interpretation, as well as their Hawaiianness. So, uh, so incredibly, that that was an incredible power that those that Hawaiian musicians brought to popular music, and they had that depth of knowledge about music itself, but also like the Bird of Paradise, for example, it's like the Lion King of its day. You know, it had massive but it didn't wasn't in a, uh, thousands and thousands of people around the world and brought that musical sound to the everyday as well as musicians listening and picking up on and interpreting it in their own way as well. We have all this uh, rich influence that you know is in the early days of you know the the roots of today's music and sound and a lot of that you know whether it's the blues or the country that kind of twanginess that's still there. And I was thinking about when you're uh, sharing that, again, in, in John Troutman's article, he, he argues that possibly more than any other instrument, that sliding sound uh, mimicked the human voice. Uh, yeah. and, and in particular, you know, kanaka uh, forms of, of singing and, and uh, it reminds me of even like oratory across the region um, yeah. as well. Yeah, I'm very powerful, and I think that's one of the um, one of the things that sticks about Hawaiian music is its emotional, the weight that comes along with it. That you, I mean, I I hear side steel guitar, and I just want to cry every time, nearly. But um, that's it's a kind of deep connection that voice-like sound creates. Uh, shall I play some music? Yeah, let's do it. 
So this is um, this is a song called Waikoloa Hula uh, Tempo by um, Johnny K. Almeida, who was a, a well-known slide steel guitarist um, from Hawaii, and he was born in 1897. One of the things that this song does, I think, is it shows uh, jazz styling as well as it's got a real swing. It might be, you might think of it in a hapahale context if you wanted to, you know, head along things in that way, but I think it's just got this real powerful um, swing style. particular track is that very lazy delivery being just behind the beat but amid the um the really impressive swing that they get into the uh through the lyrical delivery and uh in the combination with the playing and i think that's something that's unique to kanaka maori musicianship when it comes to being at that sort of level of interpretation is really impressive we're talking about the, the slide steel guitar, but then there's also its relative, right? Which is so iconic across the region, the slack key. Yeah. And and I think most people in, in my experience would identify that kind of slack key sound as a Pacific sound, right? But also has this kind of Hawaiian origin of invention and through, you know, radio and traveling musicians, arrives everywhere yeah. and I'm wondering if if maybe that's something we, we could talk a little bit about as well. Yeah when the Hawaiian Renaissance, well there were a number of Hawaiian Renaissance but the mid-20th mid century Hawaiian Renaissance came around there was a, at that point in time a rejection of hapahale music and that's that kind of typical typical Hawaiian sound was not replaced, but what took um, Hawaiian the assertion of Hawaiian identity really came through with uh, groups like the Sons of Hawaii, and the Sons of Hawaii included um, a well-known musician called Gabby Pahinui, and Gabby Pahinui is one of Hawaii's greatest slack key 
guitarists and while there's much more acceptance of all the types of music that have gone in to create Hawaiian-ness and Hawaiian identity, uh, at that time, Slack Key was one of the primary um, musical sounds of the Hawaiian Renaissance and the striving for sovereignty and independence. So I thought I would play um, something of Gabi Pahinui. This is um, Leahi, which is uh, the Kanakamali word for diamond head. track you can hear everything about Hawaiian music which is the high degree of syncretism that that comes into Hawaiian music and that's that long history of guitar playing that that has filtered through the Hawaiian royal band um, through classical training through innovations made by uh, Hawaiian musicians and through the constant sort of deep musicality that a lot of different musicians have brought. You can hear it coming through in a beautiful expression through Gabi Pahina's sound. Yeah, no, it's brilliant. And um, I'm wondering, as you know, if we get to wrap up a little bit, but I wanted to also ask um, before we do, uh, because you, you recently wrote about um, the Orange Ballroom, just to kind of localize this a bit, right? In, in Tamaki Makoto. And um, especially because, you know, that has like such a distinct kind of Hawaiian-ness to it. But as it's traveling, it's also kind of adapting. I mean, I, when I go to Faikavos with the Tongans, they, they've reinvented to kind of have a Tongan sound, but it's open tuning, slack key as well. And then you have mm -hmm. the Le'ingi with the Samoans. And, and I feel like reading your work around the Orange Ballroom, it kind of made me think of 
oh, like there, there was this kind of another reinvention, right? So you got the Spanish Mexican guitar shows up in Hawaii and they start making new stuff and amazing stuff out of it. And as it's spreading around the Pacific region, it's kind of expanding also and yeah. to kind of this Pacificness or Pan Pacific kind of sound um, yeah, as yeah. well. But yeah, I'll, I'll turn it to you to talk about the Orange Ballroom. Yeah, well, the Orange Ballroom is an incredible site for musical um, development as well because you had band leader, a band leader like Bill Sebesi, who took the sounds that he knew from his experience, but he also he also combined those with popular music set from Aotearoa. So you get he was a, as a young musician he played with a. a band leader called Epi Shalfoon and Epi Shalfoon had a really big influence on Bill as a young man and so and that was a real jazz sound so Bill's bringing the Pacific sound of the slide steel which uh, we have in the music in the museum collection actually a homemade steel slide steel guitar that he built out of a piece of swamp swamp kahikatea that he found in a workplace he he was working at just after he returned from the war. It survives even today. And Bill's such a MacGyver, the way he creates things that you can see this kind of, um, in a very nice way, a Frankenstein object. This, uh, the keys have come from different places. The, the dials are from different places. The swamp cloudy is just really um, made smooth and surfaced enough for um, it to be functioning. And, Bill was like that about everything. We have a Nathalia this as well that shows the same signs of being um, cobbled together from different instruments. So in the same way that he did that, he was also doing that with musically and he would, um, so he drew on his experience with Epi Shelfoon, he drew on the experience of the musicians around him. So at the, by the time he was at the Orange Ballroom from the late 50s to the early 70s, he had an incredible band. And one of the photos we have at the museum is of um, Bill with a band of his in 1965. And that iteration has, as a lead singer, it has um, one of the Kyles and Freddie Kyle. And the Kyle were like a musical dynasty in Tamaki Makoto at that time. And his brother Hermer Kyle had a band and all of the other Kyle cousins and brothers and sisters were um, in it and out of a whole lot of bands. There was Bobby Winyard who used to play funk um, in another band. There was Buddy Wilson who played um, jazz and popular um, sort of the American songbook in another band. And so you get all of this added, these um, musicians mixing together and it's that heterogeneity again, you know, developing sounds from that do have a Pacific that kind of have the cornerstone of Pacificness through the slide steel, but it's influenced by um, by location again. And that location is where Samoans, Cook Islanders, um, Pakeha, all kinds of people came together and those sounds came together as well. So Bill would do novelty songs, he'd do um, jazz with Mavis Rivers, all kinds of music. And, and yet he sustained a real love of um, Hawaiian music right throughout his career that I think you can locate that love of Hawaiian music with, with all of those musicians 
like Bill Wolfram, who love that Hawaiian sound so much, but at the same time, they're open to all the influences of um, the popular modern society that they lived in. Like the last thing I want to ask you then, because you keep making me want to think more, we'll keep going forever, but because you, you mentioned that heterogeneity and place and, and even at the beginning, you introduced yourself and you have such a rich, complex whakapapa, and there, and you talk about this in, in your research as well as to kind of this cosmopolitanism of it, which is kind of disrupts this logic and notion, especially at that time, you know, where the music industry is trying to segregate, you know, different categories and kind of gives this illusion of pure separate categories. But in reality, there was all this kind of cross-pollination happening or cosmopolitanism. And that's all the way up through today. And I'm wondering if you have any comments or insights on thinking about that and how kind of open um, people were and, and the result of that is still today. Sometimes I feel like people might get tempted to think in those isolated categories and forget that there's all this bleeding through constantly. One of the, the kind of enduring images from my talking about the idea of cosmopolitanism one of the enduring images, mental images I have from my research is the description that I read of Ernest Ka'ai's band on stage in Singapore. And so this would have been between World War I and World War II, around 1926-27. And uh, my great uncle George, Greg, who was born on Fanning Island, he was playing the piano on stage and at one point he stands up and he kicks his chair away tears off his jacket throws his jacket out into the audience and then just carries on playing this kind of fever of uh I mean if that's not a rock and roll image I don't know what is a rock and roll, I don't know what is a rock and roll image but this the power of that music and the kind of influences that image brings together for me are really they characterize that notion of cosmopolitanism. He's playing in Singapore, he's born in Fanning Island to a Tongareven mother and a father from uh, whose heritage is stretched back to Ayrshire in Scotland. He's part of a touring travel, touring troupe of musicians led by a Hawaiian musician who was uh, strongly asserting Hawaiian-ness in everything he did. I don't think Ernest, even though Ernest Kai traveled all around these places, Hawaiian-ness was a real um, powerful motif for him in everything that he did. So the stage show would appear in all these different locations, but in each of those locations, you know, he was, a, he would integrate parts of the things that he was listening to and learning about for example and when they played on stage in Melbourne they had, there was a, a nine in the 1920s there was a well-known air for, um, pilot and they used a plane to fly across the stage at that point to represent the story of this pilot and this Australian pilot and how they integrate that into their show so they're always looking for ideas and the next thing but at the heart of it is this Hawaiian sound and I don't think Ernest ever experienced any confusion about his identity and that's one of the that was a signal for me about his cosmopolitanism is that he fit himself into any situation but he never doubted 
his own um, place in Hawaii. So um, cosmopolitanism is, I love Lana Lopesi's characterization of Moana cosmopolitanisms and how they are expressed in the, in the contemporary world. But I think that that stretches back a long way to that earnest in this musical troupe that traveled, that uh, integrated ideas, that war fashions that were only six months old from uh, France. They, but at the same time, they knew they were. They knew where they were from. Thank you. It's just such a pleasure to be able to talk about this material because uh, I mean that's why I've, it's been a bit. I feel like it's been a bit scattershot, but so I don't get a chance to talk about it very often. But it's really nice to be able to bring it all up and think about those people again because you're not that far from my thoughts most of the time. Such an incredible bunch of people. Amazing. Mahalo nui, Andrea. I uh, appreciate you so much sharing such amazing stuff and, and to, to think on and open up the, the gates to so much more uh, that I hope people will um, continue to look into and research and to see how incredibly impactful, you know, these early musicians were and, and you know, how that still carries on through today. Mm -hmm.